Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my, <clears throat> are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you'll realise that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the counsellor, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Well, uh, we're starting a, a series on the Holy Spirit this morning. Uh, and just in line with that, uh, sometimes get a few new books uh, and some old books and put them on the book trolley. Uh, the reading team does that. Uh, so, just a few books that you might be interested in. J.I. Packer's Keep in Step with the Spirit. It's a bit of a classic uh, in understanding the work of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. Uh, that's a great one. Jesus Continued is a new one by J.D. Greer. It's very accessible. Uh, and and uh, the subtitle is Why the Spirit Inside You is Better Than Jesus. Uh, Why the Spirit Inside You is Better Than Jesus Beside You. Uh, so, that's a great, a great one to read as well. Uh, and the last one is by Graham Cole, Engaging with the Holy Spirit, Six Crucial Questions. And the questions are, 
What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? How may we resist the Holy Spirit? Ought we to pray to the Holy Spirit? How do we quench the Holy Spirit? How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? How does the Holy Spirit fill us? Uh, so that's, uh, they're all books worth reading. And if they're not there at the end, they'll be on the book trolley. Well, the Holy Spirit uh, in churches seems to be often either the source of endless preoccupation or kind of the missing person who uh, remains to be discovered. Francis Chan wrote a book on the Holy Spirit with the title Forgotten God. So too, in uh, the book by J.D. Greer, he begins the book with a chapter titled The Missing Spirit. He somewhat amusingly quotes uh, from Acts chapter 19, verse 2, which might sum up the experience of some Christians. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Yet while the Spirit is easily forgotten, his ministry can also be overplayed, I think. Sometimes you get the feeling that the Holy Spirit is the only member of the Trinity involved in the Christian church. People become obsessed with the gifts of the Spirit as the definitive aspect of the Christian life and the Father and the Son become almost totally forgotten. We tend to fall into one of these two errors, either overplaying or underplaying the Holy Spirit. And I think if we in this church, uh, to make a sweeping statement, if we in this church have a tendency toward one or the other, it's probably toward underplaying the work of the Spirit. Or actually, I suspect it's more complicated than that. It's that we're underplaying certain roles that the Holy Spirit has, we're downplaying some of the roles and maybe concentrating on other roles that the Holy Spirit has. Sometimes the blame for that underemphasis uh, generally is laid at the feet of Reformed theology. But it's worth saying, I think, that while the neglect of the Holy Spirit can be a trend in, in contemporary uh, Reformed theology, it hasn't always been like that. If you read the Puritans... They have a tremendous sense of the work of the Spirit in their lives and the importance of the Spirit uh, in, in the Christian life uh, and in the world. So too did the Reformers. In fact, Calvin has often been described as the theologian of the Holy Spirit because he talked about the Holy Spirit so much. My suspicion is that the neglect of the Holy Spirit had less to do with various brands of theology than it has to do with modernism and the shift away from a belief in the supernatural. In other words, our problem is not our theology, but the worldview that we've kind of imbibed from the world around us. But whether it's overplaying or underplaying, it's essential for us, I think, and hopefully this series will do this, it's essential for us to correct our understanding of the work of the Spirit because the Spirit is essential to the Christian life, is as essential to the Christian life as the Father and the Son. One orthodox theologian puts it like this, Without the Holy Spirit, God is distant, Christ is in the past, the Gospel is a dead letter, the Church is simple organisation, authority is domination, mission is propaganda, Worship is the summoning of spirits and Christian action is the morality of slaves. It should be said, I think, too, that a church that never mentions the Holy Spirit is not the same thing as a church without the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit can still be at work even when he's never mentioned. But a church where the Spirit is not mentioned and not understood is certainly a church where the Spirit is not honoured and glorified rightly. Just as a church where things are attributed to the Holy Spirit which are not his work is also a church where the Holy Spirit is not honoured rightly. So over the next six weeks then, we're going to think about what the Bible says about who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. And hopefully in learning and thinking about some of that, uh, it will help us to avoid those two errors of over and under emphasising. And Lord willing, it will help us to honour and glorify the Spirit for his role along with the Father and the Son. Well, this morning we're starting with a very simple question, that is, who is the Spirit? Surprisingly, we actually meet the Holy Spirit on the very first page of the Bible. When God creates the heavens and the earth, we read in the second verse that the Spirit of God hovered over the unformed waters. The Spirit was somehow involved in the creation of the world. And throughout the Old Testament, again and again, from that very first page to the end, we find the Spirit at work over and over. A number of passages confirm the Spirit's role in creating and sustaining life. Job says that the Spirit of God created him, gave him life. Psalm 104 testifies that it is the Spirit of God that gives life to all creatures and living things. You find uh, many of these references uh, on the handout in the leaflet. The Spirit enables and empowers people. Joseph was enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to, to provide wise government for the Egyptians. The Spirit of God empowered Moses. The Spirit of God empowered the 70 elders that God raised up to help Moses. The Spirit of God uh, empowered Joshua, Moses' successor. The Spirit of God came on the judges and enabled them to win victories and to defend the people of God, like Gideon saving uh, the nation of Israel with only 300 men. The Spirit of God came on King Saul and King David to empower them for battle. The Spirit of God enabled and empowered Bezalel and Aholiab, these are my favourites, to be expert craftsmen, to make things from gold, silver, stone and wood for the tabernacle. Isn't that wonderful? The Spirit of God came on them to create beautiful things. The Spirit of God puts words in people's mouths. The Spirit of God spoke through the prophets. The Spirit of God instructed God's people in the wilderness. Shockingly, the Spirit of God even put God's words into the evil prophet Balaam. God spoke, God's Spirit spoke God's words through an enemy of God's people. The Spirit of God miraculously moves people from one place to another, lifts people up in visions. Psalm 139 celebrates that the Spirit of God is inescapable. Where can I go from your presence? Isaiah 63 tells us that God's Spirit dwelled among God's people in the Old Testament and that God's Spirit brought the people out of Egypt. Isaiah prophesies that the Spirit of God will empower and equip God's Messiah with wisdom, understanding, might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Spirit of God will equip the Messiah to bring justice, to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom for the captives. The Spirit of God, Ezekiel is told, will enable God's people to walk in God's ways and obey God's laws. It was by the Spirit of God that the Virgin Mary conceived and gave birth to Jesus, the Son of God. 
It was by the Spirit of God that John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, composed a song to praise God. It was by the Spirit of God that Jesus cast out demons. It was the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead. And it is the Spirit of God who raises us from the dead as well. It is the Spirit of God who equips the church with gifts to serve God. In other words, the Spirit creates, sustains, empowers, equips, wins battles, routes foreign armies, speaks, transports. It does all kinds of things. As J.I. Packer summarises in that book, uh, Keeping in Step with the Spirit, he describes it as the Spirit as God at work, God powerfully at work in the world. The word spirit, uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, can just mean wind. And in many ways, the wind is a really helpful metaphor for the work of the Spirit of God. Uh, In John 3, Jesus describes the work of the Spirit like the work of the wind. Uh, In a play on words, he says, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. That is... The work of the the Spirit is mysterious and unseen in some way. And yet, it's also powerful. On the day of Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit comes accompanied by a mighty wind. Acts 2 says, Suddenly a, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Mysterious, invisible in some way, and yet also incredibly powerful. Wind is an invisible but powerful force. It can raise houses, it can uproot trees. In the last few weeks, there have been some quite strong winds lying in bed in the windows of the house, kind of rattling and uh, thinking to myself, crumbs, is this place going (laughs) to come to pieces? The work of God's Spirit is like the work of the wind, powerful. But we shouldn't think that the, work, the Spirit's work is always like a violent storm. Even a gentle breeze can move a ship from one continent to another. God is powerfully at work in his world through the Holy Spirit. God is not a distant God. He has not left us to our own devices. He hasn't left us to find our own way or to create our own reality. God is at work. God has been at work in our world in Jesus, but he's also been at work in our world through the Holy Spirit. He's at work through his Spirit powerfully and gently, equipping, enabling, speaking, comforting, protecting, guiding, searching out. I thought to myself this week, isn't it strange that we become so weighed down by obstacles and so discouraged by opposition when God is powerfully at work in this world through his spirit? You see, in that light, if, God is, if that same spirit who raised foreign armies, if that same spirit is still at work in God's world, then all the obstacles and all the opposition and all the problems that we face that the gospel faces, seen in that light, they become like somebody aiming a pea shooter at the leg of a giant. 
God is powerful. But God is not just in heaven. God is at work in this world among his people by his spirit, achieving his purposes. But the spirit of God is not just a powerful force. He is God. So the Christian doctrine of the Trinity recognises that in the Bible, God is one God, one being, but he is at the same time, mysteriously, three persons in an eternal relationship, Father, Son and Spirit. B.B. Warfield said that the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament is like a room richly furnished but dimly lit. That is, the same furniture is there in the Old and the New Testaments, but it's not until the New Testament when the light is switched on that, you can, that all the shadows and the forms begin to take shape. It's the same material that's been there the whole time, but all of a sudden what's in the room becomes clear and recognisable. So too the Holy Spirit is always there in the Old Testament, always associated with God, clearly identified with God, and at times also clearly a distinct uh, person. We've seen that the Spirit is intimately connected with the actions of God and sometimes uh, and is often the instrument uh, through whom God acts. So the actions of God, uh, the actions of the Spirit, sorry, are intimately connected with the actions of God, creating, sustaining, and empowering. Uh, even the title, the Holy Spirit, acknowledges that the Spirit possesses the most essential attribute of God, the holiness of God. When Isaiah sees God in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, the, the angels around the throne cry out, holy, holy, holy. God is holy above all, all things. So the very fact that the Spirit is titled holy in the same way suggests that he possesses the essential attributes uh, of God. In Genesis 1, the Spirit is mentioned together with God in the creation of the world, and in the Bible, creation and giving life is always an act of God. In Isaiah 63, we find three figures together, God, who is called the Father, the angel of God's presence, and God's Spirit. But it's not really until the New Testament that all those suggestions and ideas become really clear. During the baptism of Jesus, the three persons of the Trinity appear together, Jesus is on earth, the Father is in heaven speaking, this is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased, and the Spirit descends like a dove. So too at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus commands his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's not baptism into one person, God the Father, and one human being, Jesus, and one impersonal force, the Spirit. It's baptism into three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but one, but one God. They are to baptise into the name, the singular. The name singular of Father, Son, and Spirit. So too in uh, 2 Corinthians 13, Paul puts the Father and the Son and the Spirit together when he uses these words, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In Acts 5, Peter tells Ananias that he lied to the Holy Spirit. And when he repeats himself, he says that Ananias lied to God. That is, the Holy Spirit and God are one and the same person. Jesus warns the Pharisees not to blaspheme the Spirit. But blasphemy is almost by definition against God. And blasphemy against the Spirit is such a serious sin that it is eternal and unforgivable. 
So the Spirit must be God. The Spirit is not just the power of God, nor is the Spirit just another creature like us. He's not even a heavenly creature. A widely held view in Islam is that God, oh sorry, that the Holy Spirit is the angel Gabriel. But no, the Bible demonstrates that the Holy Spirit is God together with the Father and the Son. The point is crucial, not just because it's a foundation belief of Christianity as we proclaimed earlier in the Apostles' Creed. It's crucial because it's also immensely practical. Because the Spirit is God, when the Spirit comes and makes his home in us, it is God who is coming to make his home in us. It is not some lesser creature. It is not some force. The Father and the Son come and make their home in us because the Spirit comes to us and the Spirit is one with the Father and the Son. Jesus says he will not leave us as orphans and the only reason that we're not orphans is is because the Spirit is God himself. We are temples of the Holy Spirit and temples, please note, are places where God makes himself manifest. Because the Spirit of God is God, he can unite us with Jesus. That is, all that Jesus has won for us in his life and his death and his resurrection, all that is ours because the Spirit is in us. And because Jesus and the Spirit are one, if the Spirit is in us, then so is the crucified and risen Jesus. We share in Jesus' death for our sins because the Spirit is with us and the Spirit is united to Jesus. We share in Jesus' powerful resurrection from the dead because the Spirit raised Christ from the dead and the Spirit is in us, uniting us with that same resurrected Jesus. Because the Spirit is God, the Spirit can make us holy like God. God calls us to be his image bearers. Something that is not God cannot make us like God. You know, you don't go to a duck and say, can you make me a better person? It's only God who can make us like God because only God knows what it is to be truly holy. And so only God can make us holy like God is. Only God can teach us the deep thoughts of God. And it's the Spirit of God which seeks out the deep deep thoughts of God and communicates them to us. In other words, the deity or the godness of the Spirit is not kind of a peripheral issue. Actually, it's central to our entire experience of the, of the truth of Christianity. And it's, it's of incredible practical benefit. The Spirit is God at work in creation. The Spirit is the agent of God at work in our world. The Spirit uh, is God himself, one with the Father and the Son, but the Spirit is also a person. That is, he's not just an impersonal force, but a distinct personality. The fact that the Spirit is often listed with the Father and the Son suggests that, but so so too does the fact that the Spirit often refers to himself as I. People have pointed out that the criteria for being a person is self-reference, that is, that you can say, I do this or I do that. 
So the Spirit says to Peter in Acts 10, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them to you. That is, I the Spirit. Acts 13 verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So too the Holy Spirit can be dealt with personally. In Ephesians 4, Paul warns the church not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Only people can be grieved. You can't grieve a force, a feeling. We've seen that the Holy Spirit can be lied to. You can't lie to a thing, only, you can only lie to a person. Uh, in the passage that Nathan read before from John 14, Jesus says that he will send the Spirit as a, another counsellor or comforter. That is, another one like Jesus has been. Jesus has been a personal comforter, a personal encourager, a personal counsellor. The Holy Spirit will be a counsellor in the same sense. Jesus says in verse 26, the counsellor of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The Holy Spirit comes in Jesus' name as an envoy comes. That is, one person in the place of another. He will come in my name. Jesus' description of the Spirit is a personal description. So in verse 17 of uh, John 14, the world cannot accept him. The world doesn't know him. You know him. He lives with you and will be in you. Knowing being known, being accepted and living with are personal activities. Paul says in Romans 8 that the Spirit intercedes for us in prayer. Intercession is a personal activity rather than an impersonal one. The Spirit knows our deep thoughts and feelings and the Spirit speaks for us. So too through the Gospel we have the mind of the Spirit. Impersonal, impersonal forces don't have minds but the Spirit who knows the deep things of God's, of God's mind teaches us those things and makes them intelligible to us. Communication takes understanding and understanding takes personality. Again, that the Spirit is a person is not just a point of theological contention. Why is it important to know all those things with such thoroughness? It's not just because it's a point of theological contention, it's because it's also a source of profound encouragement. The Spirit is not a blind force or a feeling or a source of power, but a person who can be related to. He speaks to us and we hear him. He lives with us and we feel his presence. He comforts us not as a kind of impartation of something called comfort. He doesn't just say, here's some comfort. Have that. He comforts us as a friend, embracing another friend. He fills us with joy, not as a disconnected emotion, but as the experience of someone present with us, enjoying the same experience, being the source of our joy, telling a joke. He searches our hearts more deeply than our most intimate friends. He visits us in person at the furthest reaches of the world. He speaks up for us when we can't speak for ourselves. 
He helps us to pray. He expresses the deep groans of our hearts. He waits with us in our broken bodies as we long for the sons of God to be fully revealed. He helps us as little children to call out, Father, and to know that we belong to a family and that the family we belong to is the family of God. The personality, the personness, and the godness of the Spirit are not abstract theological concepts, but things of immense practical value. The Spirit is at work in creation. The Spirit uh, is the agent of God at work in our world. The Spirit uh, is God himself, one with the Father and the Son, and the Spirit is not an impersonal force. But lastly, Jesus also says in John 14 that although the Spirit is God, one with the Father and the Son, in some way the Spirit is also sent by the Father and the Son. In John 14, 26, Jesus says, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, that is, the Father will send him. Or 15, 26, When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Or 16, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is good for you that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. And in John 16, verse 13, Jesus says, But when he comes, the Spirit of truth, uh, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. The Spirit doesn't speak on his own, astonishingly, perhaps. But he takes what the Father has given to Jesus and, the, and Jesus in turn makes that known to the Spirit who in turn makes that known to us. All that belongs to the Father belongs to Jesus and all that belongs to Jesus and the Father belongs to the Spirit as well. Why is that important, you might ask? It's important because eventually the question arises, if the Spirit is the power of God at work in our creation, if the Spirit is God himself, if the Spirit is a person who can be related to a known, how do I know this Spirit? We know the Spirit through knowing the Father, through knowing Jesus. We receive the Spirit through Jesus and it's by trusting Jesus that we receive the Spirit and know the Father. The Spirit comes to us, in other words, in the Gospel. Why should God, why should God come and make his home in you? He shouldn't. Should he? Why should the all-powerful, all-knowing, holy God who made our world come and dwell in us? 
He shouldn't because we're marred by sin. And that sin is by definition our rebellion against God. We are by nature God's enemies. But God does come and make his home in us and he does it through the forgiveness that he offers in Jesus. Even our response to the gospel, in fact, comes through the Holy Spirit that God sends to us through Jesus. What's more, the fact that the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son is not just an encouragement for the beginning of our spiritual life. It's a great encouragement for our ongoing spiritual life as well. It's a bit disconcerting, I think, to know that the Spirit as a person can only be enjoyed, spoken to, related to, and so on. But the Spirit can also be grieved, blasphemed, lied to, rejected, ignored. But how reassuring it is for us to know that the Spirit has been sent to us, not because of our blameless character, and the Spirit stays with us, not because of our blameless character. But the Spirit is with us because we've believed the Father's words about the Son, that Jesus is the Saviour of the world and the source of forgiveness and the source of our reconciliation with God. Well, there's so much, I think, to say about the work of the Spirit, about who he is and what he does. But it's a great place to start, I think, to know who the Spirit is, to know that the Spirit is God at work in our world, that he is God, God who is a person and personal, and that he comes to us not by what we've done, but he's sent to us in the gospel from the Father through the Son. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you, even as we sit here now, are with us. That you, the God of all glory, are present by your powerful Holy Spirit. And that you are present not only in the room, but present in the hearts and lives of those who trust and follow Jesus. That we are temples of the Holy Spirit, individually but also together. Lord, help us to know and understand the profound reality of that truth. Lord, we confess that often we do feel like orphans, fatherless, without hope, discouraged, meeting obstacles that seem too great for us. Lord, help us to know that you, the powerful God of heaven and earth, live in us and travel with us. Lord, help us to grow in seeing your power at work. 
Help us grow in honouring and glorifying the Spirit's work in our lives. Keep us from grieving him and ignoring him. And help us to trust that it's only through Jesus Christ that we can enjoy these great and precious privileges. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.